0: This is the right, way the right way podcast.
1: The right way podcast. The
0: right way podcast. The right way podcast. The right way podcast. The right way podcast. The right way podcast. Hello, I'm Emma Gold. I'm here talking to Sam Elliott on the Right Way Podcast about my book, The Breaking.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Irma Gold, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way podcast program with me, your host, Samuel James Elliott. The person whom you just heard introduce this episode of the show is none other than tonight's guest, Irma Gold. Me and Irma discussed her debut adult fiction novel, uh, The Breaking. The breaking is about uh, follows two young women, uh, Hannah Bird and Devon, whom she meets uh, pretty much shortly after she touched down in Thailand. Uh, and they kind of share an affinity for elephants. Uh, I never want to meet a person that doesn't share an affinity for elephants, but there you go. And that sort of sets forth this journey of them kind of traveling. Uh, Around Thailand uh, to kind of assist in any which way in which they can uh, for the plight of the elephants, which is still very much a real and ongoing plight of the elephants. Uh, Along the way, they kind of uh, fall in love or fall deeply, strongly, emotionally attached to one another as they sort of uh, navigate through the beautiful, wondrous, idyllic country that is Thailand and encounter an endless procession of colorful characters along with meeting many a gorgeous elephant, many of whom are kept in absolutely deplorable and barbaric conditions. Uh, Irma never shied away from the depiction of that, and that's something that we discussed as well. Uh, But yes, it's a story of many different elements, uh, featuring many different elements, Uh, love, devotion, and appreciation for animals wanting to write the grave injustice that is still ongoing with the treatment of the elephants within Thailand, how that's tied into the tourism culture, intrinsically sort of bound there. So many different layers, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, this novel and it was an absolute pleasure to speak to Emma. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to Emma Gold, talking to me about her debut adult fiction novel, The Breaking. Ima Gold, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this evening. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: That's so good. That's so good. It's so, it's so good to have you. It's so good to have you. So you've listened to some episodes of the podcast. You let that slip just a second ago. So you probably <laughs> know did. how this goes. I always like to ask the oldie bit of goodie to find out where the idea for the breaking first originated from. Because I looked at the so I always like doing that. And I saw that there was a yes. mention of, the, of the, the fact and the fiction. And you mentioned about several, obviously, rescue operations that you're involved in or projects with, within, um, with elephants within Southeast Asia. So that I guess was a kickstart, but I really just wanted to hear from you about where it all kind of came to be.
0: Well, in a strange way, it actually wasn't the kickstart. It seems like that would be the obvious thing, mm. but I feel like the idea for the book was actually a fusion of so many different things. <laughs> it started, believe it or not, when I was about seven or eight, I, um, I was, my parents took me and my brother to the circus. Uh, we were living in England at the time and I don't remember anything about the show, but Mm. I remember afterwards that we had our photograph taken with an elephant. And I just remember the feeling of standing next to, you know, what felt like an enormous creature and just feeling so full of kind of awe, but also a little bit of fear Mm. and, As I was standing there, the elephant's trunk just brushed against my cheek and there was something about the combination of it being so gentle and yet kind of rough. I don't know, I just totally fell in love. And I look at that photo now and I think, oh my gosh, what a sad life for that poor elephant. And you can see you know, the, the guy standing there with a bull hook in his hand that would have been used to control the elephant. But I don't remember noticing it that, that at the time. Maybe I did. But that's kind of where my love of elephants began. And then um, when I was in my early 20s, I went to various places in Africa and saw elephants in the wild. And that was an amazing experience. But I wanted to get up really close to elephants. I suppose I wanted to have another kind of experience like I did when I was little. And so I started, you know, Googling about where I could go and ride an elephant. And that's when I came across all of these articles on why you shouldn't ride an elephant. Mm-hmm. And um, it led to me going to this sanctuary in Thailand, uh, at the Save, part of the Save Elephant Foundation, and volunteering there. And I actually got a grant to go there to work on a picture book that is coming out in April, actually. So that book has taken way longer because I finished that long before the breaking. But when I got back from that trip, I started writing what I thought was a short story with these two characters, Devon and Hannah. And they really just came out of nowhere. They, They literally arrived on the page fully formed. I felt like I was just kind of meeting them. And that became the first chapter in the book, but was actually published as a short story in Westerly. And I took that story to my short fiction group and they said to me, well, this is fantastic, but what happens next? So I thought, oh, maybe I'll go away and I'll write a linked short story. So I went away and wrote another one, which became the second chapter in the book, and they said, well, this is great, but what happens next? And one of the the authors in my group said, maybe you're actually writing a novel. Mm. And I thought, oh, maybe I actually am. But so when I started writing, the elephants were not actually part of my thinking at all. It was really about these two main characters, Hannah and Devon. And I'm really glad about that because I think that if I had sat down and and said, well, I'm going to write a book about elephant tourism in Thailand and the kind of dark underbelly of that then it might have been quite a polemic book. But as it was, because the book was driven by uh, Devon and Hannah and, you know, really that's the heart of the story, their complex relationship and their kind of journey unfolds against that backdrop of the elephant exploitation in the tourism industry. So I'm, I'm kind of glad it happened that way and it sort of snuck up on me. It seems so obvious to me now that... Obviously, I would write about this. I mean, I spent that time at the sanctuary in Chiang Mai and then I went back and I, I worked in Ganchanaburi and I also worked in this tiny little uh, village called Bantaklang, which literally means elephant village in the Surin province. And so I just had all of this experience of being there with these elephants in the community. So, yeah, it seems completely, completely obvious when I look back on it, but at the time it didn't actually start out that way.
1: My God, so much to unpack there, so first and foremost it's <laughs> just so interesting how uh, that it, it kind of uh gestated as a short story and then and, and then an expansion of another another short story attached to that one, and so on and so forth. I also find it interesting that it was um Hannah and Devon that kind of you saw first and 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 not um not that they were ever not fully fully realized characters obviously within this this narrative, but um I just would have thought from the outset it would have been. First and foremost, it would have been the elephants, and then from there they would have arisen uh, thereafter. So I find that to be so interesting as well. Yuma tell me about the sense of place, because that was one of the one of the things. There's just so many strong elements within the story, but I felt like it's been so well realised because you, you've you've obviously extensively explored Thailand. You've, you know what it is, because I actually think. I must tell you I've only been to Thailand once, but I think that it's somewhere that people might think is easy to depict, but I actually think it's not um, because there's there's the blending of of some very old culture there's there's there's, there's this kind of uh, inundation constant inundation with expats etc and and everything sort of in between but I mean constantly and mind you I haven't been there since I was eighteen, but just the depiction of like the night markets meeting uh annoying people that have a tattoo that they think says something when it says cock or (laughs) dick or something like that you know all that just rang true to me and i actually thought that that was kind of maybe something not particularly easy to kind of undertake let alone realize so what do you attribute that to is that something that just kind of happened organically or is that something that you you kind of had to rewrite several times to nail that just right sort of level of immersion or how did that kind of go
0: I don't really write like that. So I don't know if it's partly because I'm an editor, but Mm. I tend, like my first drafts are very polished and I think it's partly because I love sentences. So I'm really crafting things carefully as I go. There's a real drawback to that in that you can end up having to cut a whole load of words that are really good. And I did with this book. I cut the whole of part three and took the book in a completely different direction. But in terms of place, place is really important to me. And mm. in my writing, it's a real—it's almost like another character in this book and in my next book as well. But also just generally in my writing and my short story, place is really important to me. And so when I was in Thailand, I would keep these journals where I would just record all the tiny little details of, absolutely everything that was happening around me. You know, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the tastes, because all of those little details are what brings a place to life. And I was also taking just a ridiculous quantity of of photographs and videos, which are not the kind of, you know, photographs you put on Instagram, it was literally recording everything I was seeing because also I actually forget things quite quickly. I have a terrible memory. And so I really wanted to make sure I just had this really rich kind of body of material. So when I sat down to write and I wrote this book quite quickly for me uh, after coming back, which I think was really important because I didn't want to lose that sense of place. Though during the writing, I went back to Thailand again. but. I would often as I sat down to write watch a video and it almost didn't matter what the video was of but just a couple of minutes of watching a video and it's like it just took me straight back to the place so then I was in that place in order to be able to write it but one of the lovely things for me with this book has been the people who haven't been to Thailand who say like oh I feel like I've been to Thailand and during covid of course we we can't go <laughs> or the people who have been and have said oh I just felt like I was there, and in fact, the most lovely feedback that I got was from people who uh, have lived there for many years or come from Thailand who said to me that i that I got it right, that I got the complexity of the country and that was sure. really important to me uh, to really capture the complexity of the country itself and also of the issues in terms of elephant tourism because I think it's very easy as Westerners once you know a bit about what goes on in the industry to just say, well, that's terrible. It shouldn't happen. But of course it's not that simple. The issues are so complex, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for a lot of Thai people, their elephant is the only way of making money. And during COVID, I mean, that has all been lost because obviously the, you know, the 40 million tourists that were going to Thailand every year have not been going so, but, it, but it's actually a very complex situation. You know, there's a lot of grey in it. And one of the interesting things for me with the characters is because they're much younger, you know, they're in their 20s and they have quite strong... Devon, for example, in particular, has very strongly held views. Mm. But as she goes deeper and deeper into, you know, kind of behind the scenes on the industry, she's forced to... You know, look at actually the complexities of the situation and actually really confront that kind of grey area or grey areas
1: yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned about the getting it right with the, we've talked about place, but certainly I feel as well that 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 just huge sort of pervasive and complex issue of the the sort of uh, elephant situation in Thailand and certainly not um the Thai people themselves that are just uh, kind of plotting the atrocities committed against elephants. It's very much set up well founded upon the tourism as well. Um, I oh, that's look, true. it's
0: it's actually really the, the fault of uh, Westerners who come mm. over there because if none of us went over there and rode an elephant, that simply wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Save Elephant Foundation, which I'm an ambassador for, what they're really trying to do is um, encourage ecotourism so that people are making ethical choices about how they interact with animals. And there are a lot of, you know, ethical Um, projects now that people tourists can be involved with but really the responsibility lies with all of us and you know through this book almost everybody I know who's read it has said I had no idea what was happening Mm. absolutely no idea I did have this one lovely bookseller who I met when I did my book tour which was amazing that it managed to go ahead in COVID times I just hit an incredible three week period where I managed to, to have it happen. But I met this one bookseller and she knew everything. And she was the first person I'd met who knew just all about it outside of, you know, kind of animal activists. And that was so amazing. She was like, I didn't know anything about your book. I'm going to sell this to everyone. I know now. (laughs) So it was lovely to meet somebody who, who knew all about it, but most people, when they read the book, they have no, you know, they had no idea. And a lot of people say to me, oh, "I'm, I, you know, I rode an elephant in Thailand, however many years ago, and I, I, feel terrible about that now."
1: I did that. I did that when I was 18 years old, uh, and I thought of that straight away when I was reading it. Because again, yeah, I mean, I was an 18-year-old kid. Um, I didn't know anything. But that being said, I remember at the time thinking it was, it was, it was, it was weird, and I certainly feel terrible about it now. Um, but I thought of that throughout throughout that period, and I dare say there 's probably a lot of readers that that do that as well i wanted we' kind of there 's a few things that we are jumping around about, but I wondered what you thought in terms of if the situation is already particularly from your own experiences and what you 've seen if it might be somewhat getting better because i you, what I myself have experienced is there used to be there was it was so normalized seeing people kind of um with with both elephants and tigers sort of drugged out tigers in, in Tizers. Um I, I didn't um, see that, I didn't go near that, but I saw or have heard of people posing of tigers and they do stuff, they poke them in the face to essentially piss them off, to give it like a better photo and that sort of stuff. And I feel like that uh, has seemed to be eradicated at least from the social medias a bit. And I'm wondering if that by extension is also the sort of similar situation if you feel with elephants as well, if it's not as popular or as accepted to ride elephants um, within Western tourists as it might have potentially one day been or previously has been?
0: I do think it's changing, but I mm. think the majority of people still aren't aware of what it actually entails. Mm. So I think a lot of people have general concerns, but they're not quite, like you say, when you rode, and I, I mean, I would have ridden an elephant when I was 18 too. I wouldn't have had a clue. Mm. Uh, but, But I think, you know, sometimes people do and they have these kind of, you know, they're like, Oh, I'm not sure this is okay, but they don't really know. But I've also experienced people who are completely oblivious because they do want that Instagram photo. And in fact, there was one incident that happened, which I did use in the book where, you know, uh, actually me and one of the other volunteers snuck into a circus because we didn't want to pay, but we wanted to witness what was happening. And, we saw you know one of the elephants was picking up one of the tourists by its trunk, you know pulling pulling her up so she could have this great photo taken for social media. But as this was happening, the mahout actually brought the bull hook down onto this elephant's forehead, oh, yeah, and there was blood trickling down the forehead hmm. and Neither one of those girls, the one taking the photo or the one actually with the elephant, appeared to notice anything. Mm. And I—it was, it was horrific to see and just a very small thing actually in the scheme of what happens uh, to elephants. So I think on the one hand, I mean, as I said, if you Google it about riding an elephant, the first thing that comes up is why you shouldn't. But it does seem to be whilst there is more awareness i think there's still such a long way to go and i do still think it's very popular to have your instagram pic with an elephant the tiger ones are horrific Mm. i mean they drug them and then yeah i mean it's just it's awful and that's still going on in thailand but it's a little bit difficult to tell at the moment because of course there's been really no tourism so at the moment in thailand there's, there's there's this kind of horrible situation for elephants which is maybe equally as bad as as what they were in before which is that there's no work for them so their owners can't afford to feed them properly so they're starving and and there's just you know there's elephants that um, are being rescued um, to the sanctuary but you know you can't rescue them all there's just so many still who are suffering so it's a, it's a different situation at the moment it'll be interesting to see what happens once tourism starts right. up again
1: yeah i mean with the it's, I, I'm, I'm gonna try, i'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it the breaking the pajan, pajan?
0: pajan Pajan, yeah
1: Pajan. can you just tell listeners just a little bit about that email as to what that is and there's also i believe a, a westernized version as well which you also make mention to yeah. as well
0: yeah so the pajan is the the, it means the breaking essentially mm. or to break an elephant's spirit and every elephant goes through this process any elephant that you see in the western world in a circus or a zoo has also been through a version of this process in america the circuses were using shock treatment as well but but basically you know in thailand when the elephant is two at which point they still should be with their mother they They drink milk up until, you know, four or five. So they they should be with their mother. Uh, They're taken away and for a period, perhaps a week, they're they're basically tortured. They're put in a little uh, cage that's not much bigger than themselves and and they are are tortured until they sort of lose their sense of who they are. And then when they come out of that process, the first person there is their mahout mahout, who will essentially... Rescue them, in a way, and then they um, are controlled by the bull hook. Which, because elephants are very intelligent, they remember what that means. You know, during the pajan process, so they're fearful of it, uh, and that, and that's why when you see the bull hook being held, it may not be used necessarily if if you're riding the elephant, but it's always there as a reminder to the elephant about what might happen to them if they. Don't comply. So the elephants that are rescued and come to a sanctuary, a lot of them have basically mental health conditions. Some of them never really recover. Uh, Some of them, you know, elephants naturally live in a in a herd, but some of those elephants never are able to be around other elephants. It's like they've they've completely sort of lost who they actually are as an animal, if that makes sense. But other elephants do heal, and they form herds with um some of the ele- other elephants in the sanctuary and particularly when there is a baby that seems to be really healing for them and it's it's a beautiful thing to see
1: yeah i mean there's so many there's so many i want to talk about the you talked you described it at one point about the beauty and the ugliness and wanting, wanted to kind of hold on to the beauty but um i wanted to know when, when you wrote this book sitting down to write The Breaking, from the outset, I feel that you've kind of already decided to yourself that the way in which you wanted to write it was to not shy away from depicting the atrocities themselves because I've got to tell you, I mean, there was a couple of scenes in this that were the most, uh, uh, not gratuitous, they were rightfully depicted, but they were some of the most distressing scenes I think I've ever read. Uh, there was one with the with the cage, um, which I won't say anymore. I'm pretty sure you probably know the, the scene in which I'm talking about. Devin and, and Hannah kind of in the middle of the night witness that. Yeah, that was um yeah, that was that was truly genuinely distressing. And I feel that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because I feel that it was it was important to depict it in this sort of earnest way and not shy away for that. Otherwise to omit details or present a sanitized version probably wouldn't drive home the same message in which I think kind of you founded upon, albeit sort of put forth with the breaking. Is that correct? How did you kind of decide about the inclusion of what was going to be depicted and or not? Was that even a conversation that you had with yourself or is it how it just came out much like obviously with your particular sort of editing style?
0: So I didn't want to shy away from it. I yeah. wanted to be truthful, but I also didn't want to be gratuitous in any way. And I did really want there to be light and dark because there yeah. is in everything. In life, there is light and dark. And so although I know a lot of people have said to me there's a couple of scenes in the book that they find hard, I was very careful about making sure that actually there's breathing space between Mm. those and I didn't want it to be relentless for the reader. I actually think there's also a lot of joy and lightness in the book and, you know, that relationship between Hannah and Devon, which is actually what's really Sometimes I feel like I get caught up in talking about all the elephant stuff, but it's actually the relationship between Hannah and Devon that's actually driving the book. Um, And so that really, I guess, in a way, allows me to take the reader on a a particular journey. So I guess I didn't want, one of the things I really didn't want is for people to not read the book because they thought it was going to be too hard. And so what I really hope is that people fall in love with Hannah and Devon, and are willing to then kind of go on this journey with them.
1: Yeah, very well put. And I would I'd be in total agreement there. I can absolutely see what you were doing in terms of making sure there was a blend between the darkness and the light there. I mean, kind of the scene that I alluded to then, I think from memory, it bookends with... Before that is the scene at the school, and then after that is the wedding, or the the wedding which they kind of uh, get to witness as well. So I thought that there was, there was definitely, um, yeah... I think that in order to have readers, yeah, not give up, well, purely because obviously if they think it's just too overwhelming, there has to be a balance of the light and the darkness. And truly, I do think that you did that, email I totally, totally saw that throughout. And what I'm was glad. it's it's so funny that you're talking about saying that it can be you can find yourself getting into discussions about um, more the elephants. Rather than Devon and Hannah, like it's something that, that that kind of kind of seemed to arise like that. I also like like I said earlier on. I mean, like I just found it so interesting that they they were kind of what you started with, and then from there, the elephants kind of kind of were woven into it because I just find it so interesting. But funnily enough, and here's, here's I'm going to am going to splice splice the two different elements. I actually, some of the most beautiful passages that I liked the most um, were actually Hannah observing Devon. With the elephants, there was a few throughout. Um, there was the first one was when things weren't kind of uh, as intense as they got, which was witnessing. I think it's oh, testing my memory. Uh, the elephant's name began with M. It was like Malai or testing your memory. Do you
0: know? Do you know you're testing my? Memory, <laughs> oh,
1: okay, okay, I did write it down. I wrote it down, but I'm, I'm trying to see my hieroglyphics here. I think pretty sure it's Malai. Malai hugged Devon at the start.
0: Yes, I know few... the scene you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Okay, good stuff. All right. So there was that, and then very later on with um with Yucathon. Euk- yeah. Yes. Um there was another scene and there was like this beautiful passage and it was talking about how she was encircled by elephant. Or worse to that effect. I'm butchering it, but yeah. And I just <laughs> thought that those were some of the nicest scenes because because I felt that the uh, in many respects the two women are very, very different in terms of the context of their their lives of what life stage they're at, as well as their upbringings and you know, their past. But they share this affinity for elephants. And I think that lends itself to them kind of gaining insider appreciation for one another because they can see, I guess it 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 denotes a gentle and loving soul that can love or not bear to see sort of uh, an unkindness or violence committed against such a kind of singularly, I don't know, innately beautiful animal. What do you reckon? I'm rambling a bit. Hopefully there was something in there that (laughs) made somewhat sense.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing that I realised as I was writing the book, and Mm. it's not something I deliberately set out to do, it's, it's almost like, as I say, these characters kind of arrived. And so Mm. I almost felt like they were revealing themselves to me and something that, and probably any other writers will understand that because it sounds so weird, but I did write the first draft very quickly and I almost felt like they were holding my hands and taking me along on on this, you know, leading me through the story. I, I don't think I will ever have that experience again because it was, I don't like to use the word easy, but it just kind of flowed out. But the thing about the elephants that I began to realise is that Devon connects with them so deeply in a way that Hannah actually doesn't, and that, and those scenes you're talking about, you know, she's actually really observing that in Devon, and there's something in Devon that's broken because of the things that have happened in in her past, which I won't I won't kind of give away, but Devon connects with the elephants at this really deep level because these elephants are also broken so there's this really beautiful connection actually between devon and the elephants and and hannah really observes that and i think you know the other side of that is hannah and devon's relationship because hannah is you know when we meet her at the start of the book she is really lost, she doesn't know what she's doing, she's arrived in Thailand, she doesn't have a clue, you know, and then suddenly Devon appears out of nowhere and she she's been there for quite some time, she speaks the language, she's confident, she's feisty, you know, she's got these very passionate views about things and, and Hannah is really just kind of swept up into her orbit and actually, you know, ends up rescuing the elephants really by virtue of the fact that she becomes kind of obsessed with with Devon, idolises her, really, you know, because she's so savvy and sassy and, you know, mouthy and all of those things, and brash too. So she can rub people up the wrong way, but Hannah sees beneath that to the kind of softer side of of Devon. And although she starts out following Devon, as their relationship changes and things go on, she actually starts to assert herself a little bit more and actually finds herself a little bit more. And that, of course, all happens, you know, sort of like in tandem with what's Mm. happening with the elephants.
1: Yeah, very much so. I totally, totally pick up. And I like the way in which you put that with the the tandem with what was happening with the elephants because I felt that too, um, particularly towards the the latter half or the climax itself, which like when... Oh my goodness! When I read that, um, I did not expect that I did not expect that. So, yeah, uh, yeah, in the best in the best way imaginable, in the most confronting way imaginable. But, yeah, yeah, I wanted to. I felt that the thing that I liked about Hannah and Devon, and I wanted to kind of ask you about this as well, more broadly, and it probably applies to your experience when actually being boots on ground, kind of exploring Southeast Asia. Um, it always fascinates me that there's, um, particularly uh, a lot of westerners. I mean, they, they meet an endless procession of very interesting characters, like the German couple, some of the Aussies, the Kiwi, Mick that owns the the bar, all that sort of stuff. But I feel that it never ceases to amaze me at these people that kind of a lot of them come from somewhat kind of um, not so much of Intibet's case, but um, within Hannah's and who she embodies come from somewhat uncomfortable, um, at the very least, privileged if not um, backgrounds. Uh, are willing to go and completely go into live this almost like monk life of very reduced circumstances uh, in order to take up this cause of kind of the constellation of elephants or kind of trying to write this this ongoing sort of plight of the elephants what do, what do you think it is about that particular cause even from your own experience that that has this sort of profound effect on so many disparate people that come from all sorts of walks of life what do you think that is
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think Hannah and Devon, although they're not based on anyone in particular, Mm. they did come out of... So when I was at the sanctuary, I was in this unique position, which as a writer was amazing, where most of the people who were there were either much older than me, so they had grown-up children and they were, you know, travelling, or they were much younger than me. They were Hannah and Devon's age and they were traveling for you know months at a time perhaps even years at a time now obviously that seems so foreign with COVID but you know the interesting or fascinating thing to me being at a completely different stage of my life where you know I've done all of that a long time ago I know who I am and where I'm going and all those kind of things it was fascinating to actually observe this time in life when you have so much freedom you know you can just do whatever you want really but there's actually often not um, a, a clear sense of direction or purpose or knowing who you are. But I also think in terms of, and, and so I think that's where Devon and Hannah essentially came from, hmm. a, a sort of mesh of of what I was witnessing there. But I think in terms of you know being willing to put yourself into a situation like that where there's a lot of poverty and you know you you're sleeping in very basic conditions and all that kind of thing i just think you know i mean i remember doing that kind of stuff in my I, I didn't do that particular thing but you know in my early 20s you're kind of willing to do whatever aren't you like now you know less so though i did sleep in you know a hut in bandaklang with just a mattress on the floor and you know gaps of everything and all the rest of it so i mean i just think that's more a kind of a a time of life thing where you're prepared to do it and also you know the other thing that i touched on before about at that age you're often very black and white so if you're passionate about a cause and devon is so committed you know she's so passionate and i think you know a lot of people who who work against animal exploitation are really like that you know they're so dedicated so she represents a bit of of that world too
1: Interesting. And, and in terms of, I mean, she does certainly represent that. And I think that there's one point, um, she certainly embodies the sort of uh, attitude in which I think sort of echoes through many activists, which is wanting to not just save one elephant, but to kind of change the culture that sort of enables this to kind of go on as well. Um, I definitely distinctly remember her saying that at one point, I'm like, oh, like in terms of a grassroots type of way of altering that. And again, we kind of briefly touched on it before, Emma, but I, the thing I really did like, and you've mentioned about getting things right, getting the setting right, um, but, but getting this actual, the plight of the elephants right, I think is, is important as well. I think you've really nailed that too. The, so again, and and you've mentioned how there are many readers that have told you, have really told you that they, heard, they knew nothing about this. I didn't either. There's like the case of the elephants that had been painted that were coming back from festivals. And it was kind of like a case of, well, they got well-fed. For that, even though they got obviously coated in, in in paint, and I wondered, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that as well, kind of like the what you may, whether you've encountered it or whether you've heard of it, but how it's it's kind of intricately bound within this sort of that. and again, it's kind of maybe a little bit different now in terms of the worsening situation because obviously the tourism just isn't there to to fund the the feeding of the elephant with elephants. But in terms of your experience beforehand and maybe perhaps with the shading of the novel, how was that sort of that culture tied within sort of the tourists and, and the way in which it was kind of the money was pouring in, albeit not.
0: Yeah, I mean that that specific thing where the government has like these big, you know, elephant days and whatever, and and the mahouts bring their elephants and there's a massive feed and yeah they get painted up and they you know sort of dressed in regalia or whatever. But those are for the. uh, <laughs> government you know elephants essentially and some of them for example you know that I would see they only are taken to those festivities maybe three times a year and the rest of the time they're chained up doing absolutely nothing and some of them are chained in uh direct sunlight with no shade and elephants I mean there's this kind of Uh, misnomer that elephant skin is really tough it's actually highly sensitive and you know it's why elephants need access to water because they use the dirt like sunscreen so they need to be able to wet themselves and coat themselves in water and so you know I would see these elephants that are chained up too far away from water and in the direct sunlight so they will actually be getting sunburnt all the time and elephants when they're not working and and in the case of these government elephants, as I say, they may only be, you know, going three or four times a year to actually go to these uh, festivals. They When they're not working, they're chained the whole time and they're chained by their two-front freight, which means they can never lie down. Now, an elephant lives 70 years, you know, they live as long as humans and it means their whole life they can never lie down to sleep. So these are the kinds of things that are happening behind the scenes that tourists just aren't aware of. And in that little village that I stayed in Bantaklang, there are um, hundreds of elephants there who are working elephants. So I was uh, staying in this little hut and chained up behind me were five elephants in a circle. And they just stay there the whole time unless they are taking people for rides, for example. And then the elephants that are taking people for rides walk you know maybe 10 hours a day carrying people on their backs Uh, their backs are the weakest part of their body if you look at a, a elephant's skeleton you can see why their spine is the weakest part much weaker than our spines because of the way the bones sit and they have to have this huge weight on their back carrying people and often you know you'll see an elephant who has been taking uh, people on rides, the bottom of their feet's, uh, feet are unnaturally smooth just from walking over and over all day long. So it's almost like there are these opposite extremes. You know, some are just chained up all the time. Some are made to walk all day but then chained at night so they can't lie down and rest. It's, um, it's just an awful situation. And as I say, really, it's Westerners who are actually driving that uh, so unless we, de- we demand ethical situations, they, they won't change. But there is a lot of movement there. There is a lot of movement um, in terms of even, you know, um, places that were using uh, treatment of elephant that wasn't ethical are actually converting to a different model. So it's just a matter of when you go over there, finally, when we, when we may actually be allowed to again, that you know, you need to do your research, which is not easy because there are a lot of places that now put sanctuary in their name because they know that uh, that sort of appeals to people. So you have to really be doing a lot of deduction. So asking yourself, you know, am I going to be allowed to pet a baby elephant? Because if you can do that away from its mother and, and no mother will allow a baby elephant to be petted unless it's been broken you know, can, can you ride the elephant? Is the, are the elephants giving, uh, shows? Are they performing tricks? Are they doing painting? Uh, which again, you know, people think is this lovely thing, but the elephant can't actually see because they have, actually elephants actually have quite poor eyesight and they can't actually really see what they're, they're doing. And the brush that they use has like this kind of, um, like tea, in it and their trunks are so highly sensitive and that gets shoved up their trunk so it's actually really painful so you know and all and the mahoot will be there usually with a bull hook behind the elephant's ear just controlling them so all of these things that look fun or lovely on the surface have this um unfortunately this darker underside to them
1: a lot of what you just mentioned then i think was exemplified they met um devon and hannah met at one point i I I think he was an aussie expat or he was a tourist i forget exactly
0: yeah (laughs) yeah
1: yeah yeah and he was talking he was talking about how they were tough and their their feet are fine and um they love it kind of thing and yeah and yeah so i think that that kind of is it echoes what you sort of talked about there it's just um I want to say like gleeful ignorance it's kind of like just, just yeah. refusing to question and like you said with the with the all these questions that should arise particularly if like if a baby elephant is playing if you're posing for photographs without its mother then there's just something fundamentally wrong there
0: yeah um, that's
1: right I, I guess i mean and mind you Emma, like you're much more of a, an expert with this than i am but i would just I would, at least i'd like to cling to the hope but i think that that's kind of like more questions are being posed with that, but it's just so hard to tell at the moment because of the pandemic, isn't it? Like, yeah, you know, it is hard. So, yeah, but anyway, I would like to know, Emma, what was the if there was any scenes in which, uh, and again, we've talked about the beauty, the beauty. We've talked about the ugliness. I wanted to know if there was any that you yourself found particularly confronting to write, and then maybe you needed to take some time, it took you some time to kind of confirm whether it was gonna be included or if it was not something that, again, you mentioned about your your very uh, interesting writing process of being obviously probably an editor, so it probably helps you with that regard, but. If there was any that you you found to be um, difficult to write, particularly in, in in light of the fact that this isn't just stemming from your imagination, but a large portion you've you've seen such things before. I mean, I know it's a work of fiction, but you know, even just then, you mentioning seeing these uh, these animals chained up or these elephants chained up, you know, nowhere to go for for a large portion of the year in sort of direct sunlight, all of that would have to have some sort of profound impact on you. Well, obviously enough to compel you to write this novel, but. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Anymore. Was there sort of that sort of stuff, or or, or how that kind yeah, of yeah,
0: it was. I mean, it was very difficult to to witness. Mm. Uh, you know, I was there working on a project with elephants who were not in that situation, and the idea for that one, which is uh, the Surin project, is that it's showing the community that there's a different way to to look after elephants and so you know with with the elephants that we were working with they weren't chained up by two feet uh you know they would be taken out for walks every day there were no bull hooks used they weren't performing for anybody and so on i mean i think there is a range when when you think about what is ideal for elephants there's you know a range of experience so obviously on the one hand the best is that they're in the wild but but their habitat is shrinking dramatically because you know we humans are expanding so they have very little room left there were once a hundred thousand elephants in thailand there's now i mean it kind of estimations vary but there's around four thousand half of which are in the wild half of which are in captivity so there's a tiny number left now and those that are in the wild it's their, their habitat is shrinking and, and there are problems with uh, encounters between, you know, elephants and farmers. There's a big problem with that in India as well. Uh, but, but if you think about it on a spectrum, then the worst is when they're, you know, in, in circuses or zoos, being made to perform, you know, suffering under the bullhook, being chained 24-7, all of that kind of thing. And then in the middle there's a range so, you know, being in a sanctuary where they're free to just be elephants is an ideal if they can't be reintroduced into the wild. And then there's kind of a graduation. So this, the Surin Project, you know, they're still in that community, but they're in a much better situation than the elephants around them. So you are witnessing what is happening, what the reality of the tourism industry is. And, yeah, it's really it's really hard to see really hard to see when you care about elephants. And the interesting thing is when you go, so my first experience was to be at the sanctuary and there the elephants make so much noise. You know, they're always, and elephants make all kinds, I know we know elephants trumpet, but they make all kinds of different noises. You know, they sound like mice and motorbikes and you know, all sorts of things. And they're always touching each other. Always they, and they're so protective of each other. And then when I was working on that uh, project in Bantaklung in the Surin province, you you see that the other elephants that are all chained up, and they make hardly any noise. They they are. Uh, almost inert they're not touching each other even the ones that are within touching distance they're really shut down and so often um you know people say when they ride an elephant oh they seemed fine but if you know how elephants behave you know that those elephants that are being ridden are not fine they're not behaving in the way that elephants normally behave and if you go from one to the other it's really stark i mean I would hope that it would be obvious to anybody how how different it is when they're actually happy and free and when they're when they're not, when they're in captivity and and being made to work.
1: Yeah, for you to see that, I mean, like, it just even obviously reading, with, reading the book was just, you know, it's just absolutely heartbreaking some, some stuff. And I mean, I know that you've, 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 you've gone to great lengths to ensure that there's like the what we've talked about, the, dark, the darkness and the light, you know, and the contrast between the two, but ensuring that one never outweighs the other kind of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, that, that, was, that was my main takeaway from it, I guess. And like, I kind of looked at it in a, in a way as, um, it felt like an important novel. You know, and like, I think that that kind of term gets thrown around a bit, um, but it kind of, and, and, and by virtue of far be it for me to be the testimonial, I mean, like what you've heard from booksellers and all these other people that have met, you know, you've met throughout your, your course of that um that three week kind of uh, rock star in and out sort of before COVID <laughs> kind of, uh, the scourge of COVID kind of threw a spanner in the works. I think that just, like, again, show shows that uh, how much of an impact it's obviously had, yeah, because other people have said, well, I didn't know anything about that, now I do. So I think then, you know, if I was you, I'd probably take, my takeaway would be like, well, if I've gotten to one person and they've read that and then, you know, been edified within some way, while at the same time getting to enjoy and be engaged with this story, I'd probably consider that a bit of a win. I don't know. What do you reckon?
0: Yeah, totally, totally. I just, I guess I really hope that it, it gets people thinking because when you read the book, hopefully you realise there's no, it's, there's no answers in there. It's not black and white. It's Mm. a complex issue. There's no easy solutions. And what I hope is that it gets people uh, thinking about it, having conversations about it, you know, talking to other people about it. And yeah, if it, if it stops, you know, one person hopefully more people certainly from my conversations i think it's done that uh you know that's great you know that's that's really great
1: yeah that's so good look what i want to leave on and you've heard episodes of the podcast before and it's the kind of the crux of the show i always want to know about it because it always fascinates me and there's never two answers that are the same is was there any particular time in your career up until this point where you found yourself at some sort of a crossroad with your writing, where whether it's the demon of self-doubt sitting on your shoulder, or if it was one particular event in your life, some people don't actually have it, um, surprisingly. But I wanted to know from you if you had experienced anything like that, Emma, as to.
0: I did. Yeah, when I was um, when I was nineteen, I as many people did, left for the other side of the world and, and went to live in England for three years. And while I was there, I stopped writing. And it's, I'd never considered that I could ever be a writer. It was not something that I ever thought you could actually do. But writing was just always something I'd done. You know, Ever since I was little, I always loved books. My mum taught me to read before I went to school. And I just was always reading and making my own books. I remember you know, I distinctly remember the feeling of being probably, I don't know, six or seven and sitting in my bedroom on the floor making books. So I'd always written, but because I'd always written, I never really thought about it. But Mm -hmm. then what happened was when I went overseas, I was so busy working and partying and traveling that I stopped writing. And through that, I began to realize, I think it was probably at about the two and a half year point, I I began to realize that. I missed it desperately and that I almost wasn't myself without it. I don't know if that really makes sense, but it's just such a part of who I am and I love writing. I know some people talk about, you know, the writing process as being torturous and obviously there are really hard things about it. And in fact, my, My next book, the first draft was so painful, (laughs) so difficult, unlike this one that just flowed out. It was really challenging. But I just love every minute of it still. You know, I come away from writing and I'm on an absolute high. And because I work as an editor full time, I actually don't get a lot of time for writing, so I have to Mm -hmm. fit it in around everything else. And so when I do get time to write, it's often just, you know, three hours here or two hours there. And I think because of that, I really just sit down and go. And I just, I love it so much. And that was sort of, so going without writing for that period, you know, I I came, I decided to come back to Australia and I studied creative writing. And have written ever since, so it was a turning point for me where I realized it was what I actually wanted to do, and made a commitment that I was going to do it, even if I was going to be poor for the rest of my life, because let's face it, you don't make much money as a writer unless you are one or two people in Australia. Uh, fortunately, I love editing as well, so I can actually make some money and still be involved in publishing. but um, it was de- that was definitely a, a turning point for me, and yeah, I haven't looked back, I hope I don't ever have that again. I, I do notice, you know, there was a point where I wasn't, the book that I've just finished, there were several months where I was so busy with my editing work and I couldn't get back to finish the last draft. And um, it was starting to really get to me. And when I did get the time, which actually came through various lockdowns, so <laughs> I made good use of those lockdowns. Um, it was such a joy and, and, and probably the only joy really, because of the lockdowns. Mm to actually be able to write it and, and finish that. So I, I miss it when I'm not, if I go for too long without it, I do miss it, but it's always a challenge to fit it in with everything else that, you know, three children and full-time career and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's,
1: <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, first of all, that's really good to, to hear you know, that, that it... Um, that there was like this, this period where there was, there was a time where you were away from it and it just further reinforced just how vital it was in your, yeah. in your core being to continue that. So I love hearing that. My hat goes off to you. I mean, like, you know, I'm, 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 um, I've got my beautiful girlfriend, but we've only got a cat. I don't have uh, children and my, my, like I just meet some incredible people that managed to fit in a full-time job uh, raising of children, all these other obligations and writing, um, you know, as well. So yeah, that's so good to hear. But, um, yeah, absolute pleasure talking to you on the show. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful.
1: So everyone, there you have it. That was me and Ima Gold discussing her debut adult fiction novel, The Breaking. So uh, huge thanks again to Ioma for talking to me on the program about The Breaking. Uh, you can get a copy of The Breaking from the her publisher, The Good Folks at Midnight Sun Publishing now. So be sure to get a copy in your hot little hands there. Uh, big thanks again to Emma for talking to me. Huge thanks also to you for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way podcast program. If you haven't already, be sure to, if you listen to this on Spotify, give a cheeky click to the follow button that's there, tantalizing the close to the top of the profile. For the Right Way podcast. And if you also haven't already, while you're in the mood to do something that you haven't done uh, already, be sure to check out the Ever Proliferating Back catalogue of episodes. that are now extending as far back as uh, October. Don't quote me I think it's October 2020, right all through 2021. And if that's any indication as to what 2022 is going to turn out like, there's going to be a million trillion new episodes coming out. Uh, I can certainly attest that I'm fully booked up until, I think, July time. Uh, so far for 2022 with a lot of uh, another you know amazing lineup of guests and some staggeringly talented people absolute joy to speak to uh, so in the interim thank you please do listen to all back episodes tell everyone about this program uh, and also yeah thank you to you stay safe if you haven't gotten your boost already please do so and just generally leave a a lead, I should say, a good life and always continue to read amazing books.